Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, Greetings this Lord's Day on our fourth and final week of Reformation Month here at Foundation Church. I hope you and your family have taken some time over the past month to remember some of the best lessons of the Great Reformation, this pivotal time in the history of God's church. We had an awfully wonderful time at the Ratliff's house last night. Amen? Amen? Many, many of us were able to go there and, you know... To give us rainy, a rainy fall day is actually kind of perfect. I mean, fall is here. Praise God. We were thankful for summer, but we're thankful it's gone. <laughs> and uh, at least the Robinettes are. We like it a little bit cooler, so we're thankful. Today, we're going to be focusing on Reformation and Sanctification. Everybody say that with me. Reformation and Sanctification. Um, now, you might not even really know what that means, but... I think you're going to after today. Um, It's something I think that God would have us as a church consider. Sanctification is something God does in us and to us as he prepares us for heaven. Okay? It's not what makes us worthy to go there. It's not why we get to go, but it gets us ready to go to heaven. Now, David was keenly aware of his great need. You know, being used of God, one of the things that it does is it makes you aware of what a sinner you actually are. You see God do great things in your life, and and you kind of look at yourself and you ask, well, Lord, why are you doing this through me? You know, you see that you need God's help desperately. David was greatly aware of his need, and in Psalm 141, uh, he prayed to the Lord, what I would call a prayer of sanctification. He wanted God to help make him more like uh, the law of God described that a man should be. So Psalm 141, hear the word of the Lord as God calls us to worship through it. Lord, I cry unto thee. Make haste unto me and give ear to my voice when I cry unto thee. Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense and The lifting of my hands as an evening sacrifice. Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep a door over my lips. How many of you would like to say that prayer to the Lord? Lord, could you keep watch over my mouth? Could you put a door on my lips? Lord, incline my heart not to any evil thing. 
to practice wicked works with men that work iniquity and let me not eat of their dainties. Let the righteous smite me. I mean, I, I think this is fantastic. He's like, Lord, could you have the righteous just whack me? You know, let the righteous smite me. It shall be a kindness to me. Let him reprove me. It shall be excellent oil, which shall not break my head. For yet my prayer also shall be in their calamities. He's saying, Lord, I need righteous, godly people to whack me upside the head, to encourage me. They're not going to hurt me. It may feel like it's hurting, but it's not hurting. Lord, use them. When their judges are overthrown in stony places, they shall hear my words, for they are sweet. Our bones, which are scattered at the grave's mouth, as when one cutteth and cleaveth wood upon the earth. But my eyes are unto thee, O God, the Lord. In thee is my trust. Leave not my soul destitute. Keep me from the snares which they have laid for me and the gins of the workers of iniquity. Let the wicked fall in their own nets while I, with all, escape. Don't we all want to escape wickedness? We want to walk away from sin. Not because we're thinking that somehow uh, we're saving ourselves by doing it, but it is what God is doing to save us now from the judgments that come on those who break his law. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for loving us, Lord. We come into your presence just awe-stricken that you have invited us here, that we can be here in this church with your people, that you have chosen us, Lord, not to just save us from hell, but to call us your children, to make us heirs of eternal life. And not only of the life that is to come, but a life right now. Oh God, change us by your word. Make us more like you, Lord. We're so hungry. Feed us from heaven today and make us more like you. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said... Some of what you're going to hear is going to be very familiar because Andy read it. He read it in the, I believe it was ESV, right? I'm going to do it for you in the King James. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And I tried to figure out a way to read a smaller portion of it, but it really, we really have to read the whole thing. Today we're going to talk about, like I said, reformation and sanctification. And uh, I pray it's a blessing to you. 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 11. I think if we heard this about five times today, it would be okay. But we're going to hear it about three, okay? Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us unto glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue Knowledge and to knowledge, temperance and to temperance, patience and to patience, godliness and to 
godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off that he has been, he has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give all diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. For so inheritance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord God, we have come to this place in the service where we more than uh, anything want to hear your voice. Lord, I pray that you would speak to me, that you would speak to everyone that is here today, that by hearing your word, that you would change us, that you would draw us near to you, that you would set us apart unto yourself. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I think this is a lovely and intriguing passage. And if I were just going to be clinical in my examination of it, um, you would see that there is this uh, phrase that is repeated several times in a few verses, and it's talking about the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Everybody say the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. It starts off in the beginning, the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. It tells us in the middle about the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. It tells us to add to ourselves knowledge, and then it ends with the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. What's that? What, do you, what's that? what does that even mean? And really what it means is that, as God's Word tells us in John chapter 1, that, we, that, that, that all the world has heard God's Word. The, the Jews heard God's Word. They, they saw uh, you know, in, in writing God's word over and over. But when Jesus came, the word was made what? It was made flesh and it dwelt among us. Knowing Jesus and knowing how he lived and what he did and how he acted and how he treated others, that is the core really of what we're going to be talking about today. And if we were going to be, I suppose, relevant or whatever, we would say, you know, we want to ask ourselves, you know, what would Jesus do? That kind of thing. But we really do want to know, what would he do? What would he say? What would he have us do or have us say? We're not him. Uh, but how did he live? How did he walk? How did he talk? The, the uh, disciples, the apostles, those that were around him at the time that he lived, they were able to watch him and see how he interacted. We, we read about this in the Gospels and in the accounts of those that were there. But really, truly, at the core of sanctification, which is our subject today, that's really what we're wanting to do. We want to live right now in our bodies and in our lives how Jesus lived when he walked the earth. Now, not in the fact that he was out to show that he was the son of God and, and all of that, but because we are not that. Uh, but in the way that he had love and patience and kindness and joy and charity toward others. This is very, very, very important. The simple way to understand our subject today is to grasp the nature of salvation. Uh, in the language of the church today, what does it mean to be saved? And the church has kind of adopted, I think, that's not the most precise way of talking about it when someone says, when did you get saved? It's, it's, it's not the most 
lovely way or most wise way to talk about what God has done in our lives. We might say, you are saved, or uh, you might say um, many, many different things, but what you really should be saying is that God is saving me. Everybody say, God is saving me. It's kind of a, uh, if we were going to get really, really, really super technical, a lot of things, but I'd like to think of it today as a three-part process, okay? Think of it in terms of past, everybody say past, present, and future. That's pretty easy for us to get a hold of, right? Three, a three-part thing. In the past, you were saved. In the future, you will be saved, but what's happening right now? You are being saved. Now, all three of these things are true. You were saved, you are being saved, you will be saved. As our friend Kevin Swanson describes it, uh, he does this thing, and he he did it at Shepherd's Conference. I thought it was very interesting. He kind of compares it to a man who is thrown overboard off of a ship in the middle of the ocean, and he needs to be saved from drowning, right? So he says, first you have uh, this rescue process comes in three parts. First, you have to see that he needs to be saved, right? And then someone's going to have to go try to save him. And as they're saving him, uh, there's all this stuff going on. Uh, but but, but when, is, when is the man saved? Now, in terms of human explanation, the man is only saved when he's what? When he's on dry land somewhere, right? But with God, God God doesn't deal with our limitations. A man's rope might break. Uh, The rescue helicopter that a man might send, it might crash, right? The phone line when you call for help, there may not be a signal or they may not be able to find him. But God isn't like that, amen? God God isn't going to run out of gas or his rope isn't going to break, okay? But in the same sense that this man is... Uh, he's in the water, help is on the way, help is coming, Uh, he has the thing around him, he's being pulled up into the helicopter, all that stuff's going on, and in human terms, if you think of salvation like that, you might go, he's not saved until the very last second. But when you think of it in God's terms, you realize that salvation begins at the point that somebody says there's a man in the water, right? Because if God is on his way, is he going to not get there? He's not going to not get there. Is he going to fail in the process? No, he's not going to fail in the process. Is he going to run out of gas? Is the rope going to break? Absolutely not. So do you see what I'm saying? Salvation is a process that God is doing, but it's not a process that sometime somehow can break down. All of our processes can break down, but God's cannot. In the past, our salvation was accomplished by Jesus on the cross through the resurrection and by God's sovereign will. That was done before you were born. The scriptures are plain about this, and, and that's in the past. That part is done. You can read in Ephesians that right now the Bible says that it's as good as done. We are now seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our names have been written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's a foregone conclusion that God is going to take Jonathan Narwhal and that he's already preparing a place for him to live, even though he's not quite in the land of glory. In the present, though, what is God doing? What does it mean that God 
is saving you. Now, we know what the future is, and we like to think about that a lot, right? One day in heaven, you'll be on dry land. Past and present will be over, and you'll be in the future, and <sighs> Beulah Land. You, you guys ever sing that? When I sing that, I'm like, I want to be, you know, it makes me just not want to be here, you know? I'm longing for you. You know, right? And someday on the I'll stand. Now, there are days that we live in the present that we need to focus on the future because it's just too much pain right here, right? But if we live our whole lives focusing on the past or on the future, we never live in the, in the right now. So what is God doing? In fact, what God's doing in the now is a whole lot more important than what God is going to do in the future or even what he has done in the past because we're living in the right now. Sanctification is going on right now in your present. God is saving you from your sins and he is making you new He's making you fit for heaven in your future. You're going, and that's already a done deal, but until then, God is purging us from all of our sins. Now, that's really kind of wonderful. The Bible talks about that we have this, like, it's, it's like a down payment, or it's, it's, it's the seal. You know, the letter hasn't arrived yet, but God has put a seal on it. And if God puts a seal on the letter, and he God puts a stamp on the letter, then it's going to arrive. Amen? Amen? Jesus, uh, like people, the church needs uh, cleaned up from the time, and that's what Jesus does. He, he cleans not only up people, but he cleans us up one by one, but he cleans up the whole church as a whole, okay? God's not only doing this with us individually, he's doing it with the, with the, with the whole. The Great Reformation, as we have been learning and thinking about over the past month, was a time when the church was being sanctified. God was cleaning it up. The spotless bride that she is going to be, she certainly wasn't. I mean, if you go back in time, and I remember a time in my life when I was looking at the church, and I'm reading, Derek, I'm reading in, uh, Ephesians where it says this spotless, this glorious church without spot or wrinkle. You ever look around at the church and go, that's not really, that's not so, right? More like a filthy mongrel than a spotless bride, right? You, you look around at the church, and, and, and some of you might be um, prideful or silly enough to think that that's not the church. But it is. The church is filled with people who are goofy, people who have adopted silly theology, people that have no real clue about what God's Word is saying. They're getting up in the pulpit, and they're just telling little funny stories. They're not understanding that the power of God is the gospel. They're not understanding that God is crushing his enemies. They don't understand that. They're just kind of like, you know, it's a business. Let's, you know, let's put a Starbucks in the back, and, and let's give everyone a ministry. We'll give him the, the nuclear uh, engineering ministry, and, and we'll give him the fireman ministry, and we'll give her the aerobics ministry, and we'll give, him the, and we'll give everybody a ministry, and, and we'll give everybody a job, and we'll make sure that, that they don't leave because we'll make them the CEO of whatever it is that they want, you know? 
They've employed all these involvement strategies too. You know, I've been in these meetings, you know, like we need to watch the front doors and we need to watch the back doors. You know, they, they describe the church as people are coming in, we need to watch that, and we need to also make sure they don't leave too, you know. And, and, and it's, it's almost like a, a, a business strategy, but that's not what God is doing. Okay? And so even though the church is filled with a bunch of silly people and the silly ideas, you are some of those silly people. Now, some of you think you're not. We're here and we're the. We're the frozen chosen, we're the, the super wise, we're the totally reformed. We know everything. And if everyone would just do like we did, you know, then, then it would all be all right. The devil is so clever. He likes to come and tell us how good we are. Oh, man, you guys are so good, so wonderful. Because what he doesn't want you to do is he wasn't, doesn't want you to see how filthy you are, how dirty your hands are, how messed up you are. He wants you to look at them and look how bad they are and feel good about yourself. Because as long as you do that... You're not going to do what needs to happen in your present, which is really some hard work. Peter is focused on the individual here in our text, like Paul is on the church in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 26 through 27. Do you understand that individually, um, you are not the church? When the Bible talks about what is happening to the church, Paul, it's not what's happening to you. It's what's happening to all of us. And we sometimes miss the collective and the covenantal nature of what God is doing in the world. That's why when we hear about that judgment is coming on the United States, you kind of go, well, well, that can't be because I live here and, it's, and I'm pretty good, you know. Well, you're missing out on the fact that you're joined to a lot of people who are really, really, really got some problems. You are one of the cells among billions that make up the church as a whole. And when the Bible talks about the church, the kingdom of God, that's what it means. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said Jesus was doing for the church. Christ also loved the church, Ephesians 5, 25, and he gave himself for it. Now, Christ gave himself for you, that's true, but he gave himself for the the church. The church is his bride. You aren't his bride. You're part of it, but it's not just you. That he might sanctify and cleanse what? Cleanse it, cleanse the church with the washing of the water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. God is somehow taking a bunch of people who are not holy, who are filled with spots, who are filthy, who are dirty, and he's turning us into a glorious, spotless bride for himself. Now, it's not just that, and this is the way that I viewed it when I was a child, like we're dirty and we're filthy and God is just going to blanket us in his blood and, and, and then we'll be clean and, and that'll be it. And that's, and that is true. That is happening. But what God is doing in addition to that is God is making us holy. You go, well, how, how's that? Well, he, by his Holy Spirit. The Bible says that God doesn't just, uh, he didn't just come and live in the world, but he came to be not with us, but what? To be, to be in us, to fill us with his spirit. And it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can hope to be holy. Peter says, be holy. God's word says, be ye holy for I am, I'm holy. Our goal and our desire isn't that we should try to impress God with our goodness, but that we should really desire to be like him. We should really desire to be merciful and to be kind and to be loving and to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
The church is not so glorious right now, but by God's grace and through the work of this sanctification of the body, Jesus is washing the church with the word. He's cleaning her up and he's making her ready for her big day, for her marriage supper of the Lamb. That was what was going on during the time of the Great Reformation. The word of God was the water. You see, during the Reformation, there wasn't any water. That was the problem, Jeff. Here the church was filthy and dirty and dusty and spot covered, but there wasn't any water because the Bible had been taken away from the church. The people couldn't read it. The people didn't know what it said. And the way that we know what God wants from us is by doing what? By reading the Word of God, by hearing it preached. And they had taken it out. They thought, you know what we'll do? We'll have a great church, but, but, but people can't really quite take having this Bible on hand. The Word of God was the water, but there was no water to wash the church. And because of this, the church was stained and, and needed to be clean. So when John Wycliffe, when William Tyndale and, uh, helped bring the English-speaking people a Bible, at first, honestly, the things that they did weren't so great. When God used Martin Luther to bring a Bible to the German people, the first thing they did actually wasn't very good. They went in, they, they kicked down the altars, and they set the churches on fire, and they... They beat up the priests and found, there were like 50,000 people killed. Was this what, was, do you really think this is what God wanted? Do you think God wanted them to go in the church and start hurting people and, and, and doing these things? No, this was not, this was not the thing. God didn't want them taking vengeance on bad leaders, but it's what they did. Calvin did this with the French. He brought it in the language. Zwingli helped with the German and the French. And, and they were trying to get the Word of God. And once the Word of God became available to the people, there, be, there, be, there began this change, this transformation. And it's what the Reformation is. It is the sanctification that God was doing on the body of Christ in the 15th century. Now this is what God is doing in each of us though here today as individuals too. Yes, we have been saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves, as it says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is what? It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And I say this constantly, and I'll keep saying it, I'm sure, till I am no longer able to say it, or God removes me from this wife. It says, verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ unto good works that God hath before ordained that we should walk in them yeah we're not saved by our works but we have been saved so that we will work that's what God saves us for he saves us not just to take us to heaven but because there's work to be done right now yes our redemption which guarantees us a place in heaven has already been accomplished in our past but as God is at work right now everybody say God's at work right now He's saving us. He's washing us. He's preparing us for a day that is coming. Is this happening in your life? Is that what you're doing? If it's not, you're missing out on what God has for you right now. Did you know this or did you understand this was going on that God is, you know, some of you are petty and selfish and nasty and thinking only of yourself. You, you, don't, you don't have to be like that. You know, we work real hard to get what we want, right? You know, Jonathan and Ash probably worked real hard to get things ready for people to come over, right? 
You can, you can exert effort for that, right? You can go, all right, Jonathan, get to work, right? And that's probably how it worked out, right? And get out the whip and dash it, you know. And so he's fixing things and he's uh, moving boxes. You, know, you can do that kind of work. But there's another work that goes on. In fact, the Bible tells us that this work, this work of sanctification comes through, Stephen. It comes through hard work. You go, but wait a minute now. We don't want to be works-based. We're not works-based, but we better be works-bound. I can tell you that right now. Amen? So let's walk through the text, and I want to just try to just open this up for us and get this on our mind. God is changing us right now by the power of his Holy Spirit so we can live like decent people. Not so we can go to heaven, but because we're going. Verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained. Everybody say obtained. That's a past tense. It's already there. We've obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge. Here we go. Through the knowledge of God and the Jesus our Lord. How do we get to know who God is? How do we know what God wants from us? We know because we look at the life of Jesus. We know what was done, what God is doing now in our present and in the church today. Verse 3, according to his divine power, he hath given us unto all things that pertain unto life and godliness. What is this? This is He's talking about not only has he given us what it took to save us, and not only has he given us what he needs that is going to save us, but he's given us everything we need to live a godly life right now. He's given us all the things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge, here we go again, through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. You're calling today and people want to know, oh, am I called to go here? Am I called to go around the world? Am I called to, you know, change, do this great big thing? Let me tell you what your calling is. Your calling is to grace and virtue. That's your first calling. There are people that want to go do great exploits around the world, but they're not going to go. They can't do them. You can't go and just go, I'm just going to go. Faith isn't the only thing that we need, guys. We need virtue. Everybody say virtue. virtue. We're going to get to that. God has given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. God has given not only salvation one day in heaven, as I've said, but he's given us everything we need to live, a spiritual godly life right now. And the key to the power of what we do in our present life is going to come from, are we working hard to be virtuous? You might go, okay, now that really goes against, you can talk about grace so much around here. I think maybe you, you're, you're jumping the shark. No, I'm not. The hard work is not just raising money for missions. The hard work is not just, you know, getting out there and, and learning how to fight and argue with our enemies and, and giving them all good books. The, the, the hard work is going to be first, it will, as you will see, it's going to be in the virtuous life. It's what God's doing in the church right now. I have confidence that Jesus will wash his church. She may be filthy again like she was in the days of the reformers, but she has the same king. Amen? And what, you know, we look around at our world today and we say it's a mess, it's terrible, it's horrible, and we can talk about it if we want to, or we can just get about the hard work of doing what? The hard work of cleaning up our act ourselves. With the help, obviously, not the help really with the power only of the Holy Spirit. 
If we want personal reformation and sanctification, and we want the same for the church, we should all find our way to the water of God's Word and be washed today. When we come in the house of God, we should be looking at it like a mirror and saying, how do I not measure up here? And what it is it? what can I do to make it so? If you doubt that's what our text is saying, Peter could not make the point more clear, and he laid out a roadmap of how God cleans us up and makes us more like Jesus. Truth is, as spiritual and magical as it all is, the way God brings these things out in us really is through this work. So let's get to it here. Verses uh, 4 through 11, Peter spells this out. He says, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that ye by these might be partakers of the divine nature. Now you might go, you know, you know I'm just a man. It's, it's natural. Yeah. The Bible says we have been made partakers of what kind of nature? The, the divine nature. I mean, how many of you would like to that developed? Yeah, yeah, I do. My nature isn't all of that. But the divine nature within me, Christ in me, can indeed love my brothers and sisters. It can love my neighbor as myself. I'm not, I'm not preaching some kind of weird perfection here, but what I'm saying is God can do it through you. I've seen God do it in me. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that we might, these might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption. See, he's pointing this out. You've already escaped the corruption. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through us, you're saved. But God's still given you the divine nature. We've escaped it. We have promises from God. If God makes us a promise, there is no chance of him breaking it, right? So with this in mind, we see what Peter says our next step is. He says that since these things have been done in our past, since they've been settled so surely, we have work to do right now in our presence. Verse 5. Beside this, giving all diligence. And I looked this up because I thought, well, you know, maybe I'm missing it. I, I, love, the, I love it when I look up the, the Greek, the Hebrew. I look it all up and it says, you know what it means? Giving all diligence. Working really, really hard. What is giving all... Now, if you were going to describe on a job, Steve, what giving all diligence is, you know, you're there with Caden and Jeremiah and you're trying to teach them how to work. And like, now boys, give all diligence. Does that mean just kind of fritter away? Or does that mean what? Get it. Grab it. Go. Do it. Get it done. Giving all diligence. Add to your faith virtue into virtue knowledge. Now, when I read this at first, I'm like, now wait a minute. I didn't think we could do this. But what's Peter doing? He's telling them, you need to add to your faith virtue. Now, it's kind of like these things that God does and we do. All right? We, can we save our children? Everybody say, I cannot save my children. Uh, are we sanctifying our children? Not by ourselves we're not but we actually are when you discipline your child god is using you to do what to to sanctify your children that's right so when you're doing what needs to be done when the rod of correction is coming when you uh are watching them when you're seeing what's going on in their life and you're attending to it like you would a garden you're doing good work god is using you in this incredible and amazing work but how do you do this within yourself add to your faith Virtue into virtue, knowledge. And he goes down this long list. And honestly, 
It's an amazing list. A lot of people know the, the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. But this is a list of what, you know, not just what God will bring about in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit, but really how we should work toward the goal of living a holy life. Work hard. Work hard at what? Well, that's what he tells us here. He says, add to your faith virtue. Now, we know that when you come to God, what's the very first thing everybody has to have? Faith, right? You, you, you didn't give that to yourself. I love how he says, you know, add to your faith. Why? Because you didn't get faith. The Bible says, unto every man is given faith according to the measure of the gift of God. The Bible says, without faith, it's impossible to please God, right? He that comes to God must believe that uh, that he is and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Here we go. So you, not only when you come to God do you believe that he is, but you must believe he's the rewarder of them that seek him. How? Diligently. God is calling on us for some hard work. Now don't you wish you had this order? Faith, virtue, and knowledge. Doesn't it seem like people skip right past virtue and become smarty pantses? You ever been around these people? They know everything. They come to God, and next thing you know, they didn't know anything before, but now they know everything. You, ever, you get around these people? Knowledge out of order, as we know from other passages in Scripture, tells us that knowledge puffs up. It can be dangerous. And that's why a pursuit of virtue must come first. When we're dealing with our children, if you're concerned about them being smarty pants, if you're worried about all that they're learning in their school, and you're... Uh, pursuit in their life is not their own virtue, you're going to get it backwards yourself. You know, God has blessed us with a great deal of difficulty in the Robin at home. Uh, you, if you're around here a lot, you'll hear about it. We can hardly do anything over at our house. You go, oh, come on, you're being silly. Well, not, not really. But I told my wife, I'm like, I don't care if my kids learn to read. I don't care if they learn math. I don't care if they learn anything. They got, they, if they're going to learn something from mom and dad, it better be loving their neighbor it better be being kind you go now mark i mean they don't you know you don't get a diploma for that it's like well i don't really whoever's giving out diplomas i don't really care about what they think add to your faith what virtue what do we want to do our kids we see them we see their faith and we're like you know we got to get them prepared for life and we're going to fill their heads full of knowledge and we're going to make sure they have a job and all the while we skip right past what God says is next in the list is this, their virtue. Well, how do we, what do we even do? I don't think most of us have any idea even how to do that. But God says it's our work. Maybe we should figure that out. We, we figured out how to educate our children to give them knowledge, but have we taught them and trained them in virtue? What is virtue anyway? You know what virtue is? Virtue is loving your neighbor as yourself. What on earth would happen in our home, in our churches, if our kids loved their brothers and sisters like they love themselves? You talk about a, a blazing reformation. Have mercy. I mean, I thought when we homeschooled our kids that that would sort of be automatic, right? Wow. There are sins I didn't even know about. A list of homeschooling sins. I mean, you know... It's like people that thought if we grow all the food in a greenhouse, it'll ne nothing bad will ever happen, you know, and, and then you get all the greenhouse diseases, right? We got some greenhouse diseases here. 
Because we've added to our faith and we've skipped virtue and we've moved on to knowledge. Because virtue is just too hard. I mean, well, we can't do that. We're not virtuous. We're sinners. No, that's when we love to quote that verse, right? We know how to throw a book at them. We know how to send them through their, their, you know, get them on the computer and have them do math. But teaching your children virtue, teaching yourself virtue, well, you know, let's move on, right? Let's, let's just, why don't I just move past that? But the deal is, I'm telling you, God has been dealing on this issue. We've added to our faith knowledge. And we've skipped virtue altogether. Virtue is loving God with all of your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself. You know what? If you only had one thing to teach your children, I'd teach them that before I taught them how to be smart. Christians today tend to laud their faith. They laud their knowledge. But they skip past the selfless life, the life that esteems others better than us that lays down their life for their brothers and sisters, that moves with compassion when it sees our brothers and sisters in need. I'm writing my book. I'm, I'm totally almost finished completely with it. And I'm, I'm writing this thing, and I get to the scripture, and in, in, uh, it's in Peter. He said, how can you say that the love of God dwells in you when you know your brother and sister have need? And it doesn't move you I mean you can't get any more clear than that move you doesn't mean make you dance how can you say the love of God is in you if when you know your brothers and sisters are in need if it doesn't move you that's what that's what virtue does virtue moves you virtue makes you go I gotta do something and I gotta do it now I can't go on with life I can't go on to the next thing I have to do something that's what it is. You don't have that. You better be praying for that. Because I'm going to ask you, how, how could the love of God dwell in you and it not move you? I think we know the answer to that question. Maybe the love of God's not dwelling in us. Virtue is hard. It's difficult work, but is worthy. Where God has given you the divine power to accomplish this through the power of the Holy Spirit. What he does will not go back in time to do what God has already done for you, which is save you, but it will work well in your present to accomplish work in the kingdom of God. We want to go and do great things. And God says, go and be virtuous if you want to do great things. Right? We've been talking about this. We're talking about this deployment team, these young men. And what we're realizing is, I don't know that we really want to send a bunch of young men over there. Maybe we don't. Maybe their training might be being virtuous. I mean, they can learn the language, right? They can get support. They can do that. But, but if they're not virtuous, are they going to do, are they going to help the work or hurt the work in Myanmar? They're going to hurt it. If you want to be a kingdom worker, work hard at beating your body down and making it a servant of all men and not of its own passions and aims. This is what I'm looking for in you, Rebecca. It's what I'm looking for you in Benjamin. This is what God has called us to do. It's what brought this church to be. It's what brought people to Christ. It was saying, okay, you know what? What I got planned and what I'm doing isn't really that important. God's got some people to save. Now this doesn't discount knowledge for Peter puts it third, okay? So it doesn't mean knowledge is useless. But knowledge without virtue, I'm telling you, is bad. 
it will hurt people. That's why just filling a kid, you know, I was with Brother Kevin Swanson a while back, a couple of years ago when I was just getting to meet him or maybe three or four years ago. And, and um, he was asking me about Nathaniel and he was sitting there talking. He said, well, how many books have you read? Nathaniel talks about all of his books. And he goes, maybe you should stop reading books. He goes, why don't you stop reading and start doing and see what happens in your life? On the other side of knowledge, we will see that there is a call to temperance. And really, knowledge is sort of, it's kind of sandwiched in between these two things. Because knowledge can be really, really dangerous, right? People that think they know stuff. People, you know, people that can get up and they can expound the word of God, but they actually aren't living it. That's not so good. So, so knowledge gets sandwiched between virtue and temperance here. We see this call to temperance, the life of balance and moderation, not to extremes. The life of balance and moderation is, uh, is us not saying we know the right way. No one else does. That's not, that's not the balanced life, folks. It's, it's actually pretty telling of how immature we are, and we've been, definitely been there. Everyone else is a fool, and we're wise. We never do these things. Oh, we'll never do that. We only go here. We only do this. The words like that don't come from people that are walking the life of moderation and temperance. Words like everyone or no one or never or only. These can help us understand if we're walking in the path of supernatural, spirit-filled temperance. The life of moderation is what tempers the knowledge that God gives us. And it is a pursuit that we have, this, this self-control that we have. You know, in our own flesh, we, 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 we are so, we can be filled with pride in our virtue. Temperance helps us with that. It helps us to understand that we were sinners saved by God's grace. Such were some of us, but we have been washed. We've been sanctified by the power of God. Verse 6, add to your knowledge temperance to temperance, patience into patience, godliness. In fact, you know, if I were a little kid and I was reading this, I would just think, you know, we just need to add some nice, we just need to add some nice things like temperance and patience and, and godliness. Folks, patience and godliness, people of God, what would happen in our lives? What would happen in this church if we worked at that? We know how to work at, you know, uh, making sure we have a retirement we know how to work at making sure the yard gets cleaned up or, or, you know, work at saving money on our grocery bill or whatever. Well, what on earth would happen if we worked at patience? I've never even heard of anybody working at that. I'm going to explain how you work really, really hard to get to be more patient. I mean, I, I understand that we go, you know, when we're afflicted and when horrible things happen and when trials come, yeah, we get patience. But, the, but what he's saying right here is you should work for it. It's kind of like being judged of God. Like, like, you know, if you judge yourself, you won't be judged. And if you work for patience, you're not going to have to have the trials and the difficulties that bring it about. We don't just need clean lives, but we need God-like lives lives like jesus lived i mean jesus didn't just not sin right but he touched people 
they're like, if he knew who that woman was, he wouldn't let her even touch him. But Jesus touched lepers and blind, and he, and he hung out with the poor. He didn't see people like we do, you know, like, oh, wow, you know, they got a navigator. Ooh, my brother has one. And, wow, they, they drive the Mercedes 15-passenger van. Ooh, I had to say that one for the week Jonathan's not here because his mom and dad have one of those, you know. And uh, that's what we do. We look at people. We're, oh, look, they have an important job. Look, they, they work at the bank. They're a vice president. There's somebody. Wow. You know, that's the way we are. What does James say that people of God don't do? They said the man comes in and, and you go, well, in theory, I kind of understand this. He comes in and he, he doesn't smell just right or look just right. And you go, could you kind of sit over here? Because, like, we don't want you to get anything on the furniture. But, and we put the other guy. This is how Jesus lived out. We don't live like this. We meet people and we're like, you know, we got to be careful who we allow into our lives. You know, when these other people, we just bring them into our life. We don't even know who they are. Add to your godliness brotherly kindness and brotherly kindness charity. You know, we have an entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 on what it is charity is, but what in the world is brotherly kindness? I think it's so unheard of. I don't think anybody even knows what it is. But if it's going to make it to number, you know, whatever, the last, second to the last on the list of the most important things, what could it even be? Most people mistake kindness for weakness. But it's only fools that do that who don't know any better. Jesus appeared. Jesus was kind. Jesus was even kind to the people who were hurting him. Now, we don't really see all this as all that important or all that powerful. But I'm telling you right now, I go with these men. I go with these men at the Shepherds Conference and I do a thing on kindness. And I think it actually shocks them. I'm like, do you, you want to change your home? You want, to, you, want to, you want to level the powers of darkness? Practice being kind. You see, we're so used to fighting the world and fighting the devil, I think we fight our own family and our children. You want to, you want to fight the evil in their lives? Why don't you just try to be kind to your kids, to your wife? What in the world would happen if mothers and fathers were kind to their children? We know how to beat their heinies, right? I know, I could, I could never go mainstream. The heinies would never make it in the... In the... <laughs> Don't let anyone talk you out of being kind. You see a person that has a kind spirit, that's gentle. It's one of the most powerful and rare things on earth. They're making another movie about, about a kind person. You, you guys know about this? Mr. Rogers. Do you, know what, do you know what made the whole world look at him like, like you know, he's from another planet? Because he was kind. He's a Presbyterian. He felt called as an evangelist to television. He made all the little puppets himself. I, I watch him and I just want to laugh at him because I think he's so goofy. But as I get older, I go, I think he may have been kind. 
I think, it, I think people don't understand the power of kindness. You should try it out. You want, you want to really do something for God. You might, oh, I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to kick the devil's teeth in, and I'm going to go out there, for, and I'm just, well, I'm going to go, yeah. No. That's not what Jesus did. The Bible said Jesus went about a healing all that were oppressed of the devil. What does that even mean? God was with him. Jesus was kind. He goes, he goes to the, the woman at the well. He encounters her there. and She's, she's, she's been married all these times. She's, she's filthy. She she's believes in this weird, you know, uh, twisted idea of Judaism. They're worshiping God on a whole other mountain. She's a mixed breed. She's messed up. Samaritan. She's there at the well. So what's he do? He's just, he just talking to her. He's just enjoying her. He could, he could have been out talking to thousands of people, but he wasn't. He's just talking to her. Kindness is powerful. I know you're thinking, well, you know, can he move on? No, I just don't know if I can. Mr. Rogers was kind in the ways of the world and among those who walk in darkness. Kindness is nothing but ignorance and naivety. But kindness is a killer of the dark spirits of deception and it works like an effective medicine within the body of Christ for unity and peace. You want to be a good member of Foundation Church? Learn how to be kind. Work at it. You know, you might, you may want to ask somebody, am I kind? And they may go, not really. You're really kind of nasty. Okay. You know, as we were reading the psalm, David is like, I want the righteous to smite me. Jonathan, you know, it's one of the things I love about you. And I'm not just trying to praise you. I love, I love you, buddy. I really do. You know, I think of that time I was on the phone with you for the very first time. You're out in Wisconsin. And I just remember going, I love this guy. I just love him. I, I mean, I didn't know, you know, I didn't know you were this handsome and everything like that. But, 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 you know, I'm on the phone and I'm just like, I just love this guy. But Jonathan need hit upside the head a couple times in his life. And even in my relationship, I'm like, Jonathan, do you realize you're just kind of like not really thinking of the Robinette family here? You're just kind of treating us like trash. Did you, did you know that? And he's like, no, I didn't really know that. I'm like, would you quit? And he goes, I'm sorry. Right? Has that happened to you a couple times? You remember that? You, you may not even remember. But, but that's... God's people should love each other enough to hit each other upside the head when necessary and go, Steve, I know that's not what you want. I know that's not what you're shooting for, buddy, but that's what you're doing. Quit it! And so we can help each other in this process. But how many of you would like to be smitten by the righteous? I, I certainly do. And some of you have done it. And I didn't like it when you did it. My wife tries it all the time, and I have to tell her to quit it. <laughs> Only to be reminded. She goes, well, you keep saying in your pulpit you want it done, and, you know. I want it to happen in their lives, honey, in their lives, not in my own. <laughs> would be to God that some of us would put our shoulders to the plow of brotherly kindness here at Foundation Church. Amen? As much as we've been figuring out how we're going to earn money or do some great thing for God, as we are so quick to say, it sounds like God would rather that we do be something great than do something great. Amen? 
He doesn't need us to do anything, great or otherwise. But He has called us to the hard work of being kind. Now listen to what Peter says will happen if this is the work that you put your life to. What? What work? Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, to temperance patience, to patience, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, charity. If you work at that, here's what he says is going to happen to you. If these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the what? In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you have taught, you know, I don't want to be a fruitless Christian. I want to produce something. I want to do something with my life. Come on, I've heard you say it, right? God says if you want to produce fruit in the kingdom of God, if you want to do something, if you don't want to be barren, then learn to be kind. Learn to be virtuous. Do the hard work of adding to your life knowledge in its proper place. Find out what it means to be self-controlled and have temperance in your life. You might say I have too much to do. I want to see God's kingdom come and His will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but I really don't have time to work at being kind, patient, virtuous, or, or having a lot of knowledge. I just want to, you know. Peter seems to say that if you do the hard work that it takes to do these things, that what you will be is fruitful. And if you don't, you're going to end up being barren. Verse 9, He that lacks these things is blind, and cannot see a fall. Can blind people go to heaven? Everybody say, blind people can go to heaven. Yeah. But when you don't do these things, you're walking like a blind person. He says this exact same thing in Ephesians. He goes, you people have been called out of darkness into the marvelous light of God, and you're walking around like blind people. Those people, their hearts are dark. Those people, they haven't been, they haven't seen the glory, and they walk like that. Why do you walk like the Gentiles walk, who walk in the vanity of their mind, having their understanding darkened because of the blindness that is in them, right? He says, but you haven't so learned Christ. What does he say next? He says, you should be kind. You should read it. That's what he said. Because of this, you should be kind. You should tell the truth. You should, you should love your neighbor as yourself. You should learn temperance in your life. You should sing beautiful songs to God. That's what he tells them to do because of these things. He that lacketh these things is blind and is so nearsighted that he has forgotten that he was purged from his own sins. He's not telling him that he's lost because of it. He's saying that here God has saved you in your past and God is going to save you in your future and you're right in the middle of your present and you don't even know it. Don't live like a blind man, right? Remember Jesus said, don't, don't, don't do like the Gentiles. The Gentiles, they worry about what clothes they're going to wear. They worry about what job they're going to do. They worry about what food they're going to eat. They worry about where they're going to live. They worry about their house. These things do the Gentiles seek. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to us. We want them added, Right? But let's let God add them to us. And why don't we focus on adding to our faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance and to temperance patience and to patience godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and brotherly kindness. Charity. Not doing this work, not praying for God to accomplish these supernatural goals and milestones in your life is sheer spiritual blindness and short-sightedness and forgetting what God has done to save you. Has this been what you've been focusing your life on? 
Are you a hard worker? Some of you like to think you are, but are you working hard at what God says that you should be working hard at? Or are you living like a blind man who doesn't even know God at all? Do you fill your days working for things that will perish or entertaining yourself? Are you laying up treasures for heaven or are you making yourself a nice nest egg? Peter brings it all home in verse 10. Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence. He goes right back to it, Steve. Give diligence. Work at it to make your calling and election sure. You see, this work that we do is not so we can be saved, but it is to say, this is what God's called me to. This is what my life should be about. This is what pleases God. Being is more important than doing in the kingdom of God. Give all diligence to make your calling and election sure. And if you do these things, you shall never fall. Now, when I was an Arminian and the way I used to think, I'm like, this is how you, this is how you keep yourself saved. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, you want to live a life where you're not all the time falling in pits and living with all of the horrible consequences of your dumb life then spend your life adding to your faith virtue you you can live like a blind person or you can walk in the light give diligence work hard to make your calling and election sure work hard you've been called to a life of faith virtue knowledge temperance right when this is your work it confirms that god has indeed chosen you and that you are being made fit for heaven you are not as I said many times here, earning your place there, but you're getting ready for the post that you'll fill there. Peter says that those who do this can expect the gates of heaven to swing open wide for them. Verse 11, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How many of you want the gates of heaven to swing open wide for you? I don't understand how it all works, but the Bible says we're going to be judged for every idle word that we speak. We're going to be judged for the time that God gives us. He tells us that we are to redeem our time for the days are evil. All of these commands are in Scripture, and I don't understand how it all works. I can't imagine how. I'm not going to go to heaven and cry one day for the wasted time that I spent and for how I walked like a blind man on earth. I don't know how I'm going to go and still know that that's true and not be sad in heaven. I don't know. But I can tell you what, I, I don't want to waste my life away. I want to work toward the things that God has called me to give my diligence to. And so that's what we need to do to bring about reformation at our church. To bring about reformation in our nation. Amen? That's what our brothers and sisters did at the time of the great reformation. You will see that the lives of those that accomplished most in the world were people who had accomplished personal piety. John Wycliffe, William Tyndale, even Luther, as rough as he was, was a man who when the plague came wouldn't leave. He wouldn't abandon his people, who, who uh, held his life to the standard of the Word of God so much so that his righteousness uh, blew people away. Calvin was the same. These great men of God were not men of God uh, who thought they were going to be great, but they were men who put their work, their shoulder to the plow of adding to their faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, temperance patience, patience godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness charity. Let us pray. Oh Lord, let this be the work of our church. Lord, we do a lot. We want to do more. We want to do more in the community. 
more overseas, more in the world, more with our, our, our local government, Lord. We want to do more. But Lord, I, I really feel that we're being called to be more instead of do more. Lord, if we can do more through being more, Lord, let us, let us do that. But let us do the hard work today. Sanctify us, cleanse us, wash us, make us more like you'd have us to be. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.